Hey, this is the Green Blues Show. A bit of news, a bit of blues. Today, fighting for the 15 buck minimum wage sounds reasonable. In Kansas City, Missouri, across North America and around the world, workers are struggling to make it happen. And gene drives. The latest genetic engineering tool makes GMOs seem like tinker toying. In our second half hour, watching the mercury rise around the world, visions of life in South Asia at the end of this century, where climbing wet bulb temperatures may make life outdoors too hot to handle. Handle today's edition of the Green Blue Show with care. I'm David Kattenberg. A couple of days after the Las Vegas massacre, the worst act of gun carnage in the land of the free and the home of the brave since Wounded Knee, I visited the website of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. At this time, Homeland Security reported reassuringly on October 2nd, the blood of over 500 country music fans barely dry. We have no information to indicate a specific credible threat involving other public venues in the country. Interesting, I thought. Aren't people getting shot, injured, and killed pretty much every day down in the U.S., brutally and without reason? According to gunviolencearchive.org, an astonishing 46,928 acts of gun violence have occurred across the U.S. since the start of this year, in which some 24,000 have been injured and 12,000 killed. Among these, 550 children under the age of 11. There have been 273 mass shootings in towns and cities across America this year, in which hundreds have been killed or injured. Still, the Department of Homeland Security has no information to indicate a specific credible threat involving other public venues in the country. Notwithstanding, America's guardians advise, increased security in and around public places and events may be experienced as officials take additional precautions. This is the Green Blue Show. I sent for my baby and she don't come. I sent for my baby and she don't come. All the doctors in hot springs sure can't help her no. And if she gets unrooted, things she don't want. If she gets unrooted, things she don't want. Take my 3229, cut her hair and She got a 30 special, but I believe it's most too light. She got a 30 special, but I believe it's most too light. Across North America, low-wage workers in the fast food and retail industries are demanding a minimum wage hike to $15. Bridget Hughes is one of them. This 26-year-old mother of four is fighting for better wages in Kansas City, Missouri. Bridget, tell me about yourself. Tell me about yourself and your family and and how how you guys managed to make ends meet. I know you're working for Burger King on a, a minimum wage salary of nine dollars and fifty cents an hour. Um, t- t- tell me about that. How you managed to survive 
you and your husband and your family on on a pair of uh, minimum wages in, in Kansas City? Well, it's definitely very hard. Um, again, uh, as you know, my name is Bridget Hughes. I do work for Burger King, uh, where I make nine fifty an hour. I've been in fast food for 11 years now, and I have four children who I have to support. And, I mean, it's, it's definitely very hard to be able to survive on uh, $9.50 an hour, even with uh, my husband's income as well. Uh, we definitely have to rub pennies together to be able to, you know, take care of lights and food and even basic necessities such as uh, shoes and clothing. So I decided to join Stand Up KC and fight for $15 an hour in union rights uh, three years ago because of this. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, let, let's get to that in a moment. But, you know, a nine dollar nine fifty an hour wage. How many hours do you work uh, a week? I work 40 plus hours. Uh, usually I'm scheduled anywhere from 38 to 40 hours. And then I face the reality that sometimes I need to come in early because people can't make it or stay late or sometimes we're just understaffed and busy. Um, so I end up a lot of times working even more than 40 hours a week. Um, I also recently obtained a second job to try to help with um, utilities and everything in the household. And so, I mean, I'm home maybe six, seven hours out of the day to sleep, and then I'm at work majority of the time. And, of course, you don't receive any benefits. No, we have no health insurance, no, uh, you know, maternity leave, no set schedules, uh, no type of benefits whatsoever. We just kind of have to try to make things do for ourselves. And unfortunately, majority of us are forced to turn to government assistance, you know, food stamps or Medicaid, et cetera, just to be able to have some type of health insurance and food in our homes. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you from Canada where... It depends on what province you're in, but by and large, us Canadians, we Canadians, we've got public health health insurance. Our basic health needs are are met through through core publicly provided health insurance. But you don't have any health insurance at all. Correct. Um, I do receive uh, Medicaid uh, because of my children and my low wages. However, that really does not cover much. Like I, I get to see a doctor for a physical once a year, and then I get help with prescriptions. But as far as emergency medical care or um, even if I was to get the flu and needed to be admitted to the hospital, the Medicaid doesn't cover any of that. So we still come out of pocket significantly for health um, uh, medical bills. And and you're not unionized? Correct. Uh, we are still currently fighting for our union. Uh, we do act as a union, but we are not, we, we haven't been officialized yet. Now, who is we? Uh, Stand Up KC uh, is the chapter that I'm a part of, but the movement altogether is the Fight for 15 movement. And this is a movement that's larger than just Kansas City, I think, but Stand Up KC is in, in Kansas City. Correct. The Fight for 15 is actually global now. All around the world. Correct. We have uh, several countries across seas who have joined the Fight for 15 as well as... Uh, we have majority of the United States that is a part of the Fight for 15 as well. 
So tell me how, how you got involved in, in that, uh, uh, in, in that movement and, uh, and, uh, yeah, to tell me, Bridget, how, 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 how you yourself got involved in, in, in the fight for 15. Well, three years ago, um, I, like I said, I've been in fast food for over 11 years. When I started in fast food at 16, our minimum wage was 7.25, and now at 27, our minimum wage is 7.70. So it's increased by 45 cents. Um, I, I was um, had two children at that point. I was pregnant with my third child, and a coworker came to me saying, hey, you know, fast food workers are going out on strike for $15 an hour. Now, admittedly, when I first heard about it, I was kind of skeptical. I was like, you know, no way. They're never going to give it to us. You know, what's the point? And then I went to a meeting with a coworker of mine, and I really listened to the stories of other workers, workers just like me who face coming home to disconnections or not knowing where their next meal is going to come from or not being able to afford shoes for their children. And I really was able to connect with them. And I told myself, nothing is going to change in my life unless I decide to stand up and fight for it. And we're never going to win $15 an hour in a union unless we stand up together and fight for it. So I didn't want to be that one worker that wasn't out with the rest of my workers fighting for something better. So I decided to join Stand Up KC and Three years later, I'm a, a leader in the movement and involved in several other political activities in my community. And, I mean, it's it definitely changed my life and changed my perspective at my job. It's given me more confidence at my job, and I've earned raises for myself over the years with the tools that I have learned through the movement. There's nothing like getting personally active in uh in in some kind of activity in one's community, politically, socially, in the labor movement, to to give oneself strength and confidence. Right, and I mean that's the beautiful thing about this movement. This is the largest movement that I'm personally aware of. That not only do we focus on the social justice, but we focus on the racial justice, the economic justice. I mean, it doesn't matter what gender you are or what's your sexual orientation is or what race you are. We have people of different backgrounds all across the country that are a part of this movement, and we're fighting for all of their rights, all workers' rights, no matter where you come from or what color you are. How are low-wage workers uh, uh, treated uh, in their place of employment and in their, in their communities, Bridget? You speak about racism. Uh, you speak about... Uh, uh, you know, social conditions, but how do you feel you're treated in your community and in your place of work? Um, I honestly feel like I'm treated as a lower-class citizen, uh, despite the fact I, I have a high school diploma. I even went to college and got a degree, but because of economic circumstances, I was forced back into uh, fast food. And, I mean, logically, these are the jobs that are currently rising even if I leave fast food and I go get another job, I'm still going to be making less than $15 an hour because, I mean, these are the jobs that are available to us right now. But I definitely a lot of times feel like I'm treated as if I'm somehow not as good as everyone else, as if somehow 
I'm not considered an American in my own country. Like, I don't have the ability to pursue the quote-unquote American dream and be able to spend time with my children and have those events at their school and have family barbecues and be able to take family vacations like every American should have the opportunity to do. But unfortunately for a lot of us, that's just not the reality. I mean, we're disrespected at work. We deal with sexual harassment from uh, not only our employers, but our customers as well. Uh, <laughs> a lot of times we're harassed um, verbally or um, insulted verbally at our jobs because we're, we're just looked at as, as if we're nothing, like, oh, you're, you're just a cook or you're just a cashier. But the sad reality is we're not just cooks and we're not cashiers. We're people. We're mothers. We're fathers. We're sisters. We're daughters. And we're trying to survive like everyone else. But we have to deal with circumstances that we shouldn't have to deal with simply because we don't have that union to protect us. We don't have that union to say, this black worker and this white worker is going to make the same wage for the same job because this this is what's right. We don't have that ability to say our employers is going to pay us this wage because this is what we deserve, this is what we need. So we, we have to fight for that, and we're going to continue to fight for it until we do get our union. What do you say to those, uh, Bridget, who argue that, uh, you know, a $15 mandatory uh, legislated minimum wage in the United States and the fast food and retail industry would be, uh, to put it baldly, bad for business. You know, it would actually reduce employment because employers would would hire fewer people and, and it would stimulate the development of, of robotification. Like, I can't imagine robots putting together fast food meals for people, but I suppose it's possible. Uh, how do you respond to those who say, $15 minimum wage, it's it's not going to be good for the economy. Um, as far as on the economic level, if workers were making $15 hour minimum wage, we the companies would have less turnover. It would build morale. Not only that, but workers would have the income to be able to put money back into these businesses to increase these businesses. These little small mom and pa shops that are local in our communities, we would be able to go into their businesses and put back money into the business as well as they would save money on training cost or training fees to be able to train people because I mean people would want to keep their job. They're making a wage that they can actually live on and afford their bills. So they're gonna to want to keep coming to work and they're gonna increase productivity because they're gonna be happy about being at work and they're gonna be happy with the wage that they're making. So therefore their production is going to increase. So I don't see how this would negatively affect the economy at all. And as far as the whole robot argument, there's a personal connection that you get when you come into a restaurant and you actually speak to a human being, somebody who asks you, how's your day going? Somebody who can remember your order every single day and get your order exactly how you want it. Somebody who knows, okay, you're, you're dealing with something at home and they can see your face and know that you're dealing with that. You cannot get that personal connection from a robot. And there's nothing like a worker who's uh, who feels secure and uh, 
financially secure and doesn't have to worry about how how to make ends meet. Exactly. I mean, if I go to work and I don't have to stress where dinner's coming from and I don't have to stress, oh, I'm going to I'm going to go home and the lights are going to be cut off or I'm two months behind on rent. If I didn't have to stress about that, I would be at work with the biggest smile on my face. I would do anything this company wanted me to do. I would increase production. I wouldn't just go and quit my job and go try to find another one because I'm struggling at this job. So what's the point in going to work? Bridget, can you tell me how employers uh, in uh, in Kansas City are responding to, to KC Stand Up? Um, we've won raises for over 22 million Americans across the country. Um, we've also won some raises locally in our shops. Um, our local Popeyes here has increased starting wages to $9 an hour, um, where they used to start off at the 770 minimum wage. Uh, they're now starting workers off at $9 an hour. Uh, McDonald's has increased uh, wages for workers locally as well. Uh, so we definitely see a positive effect uh, with the movement. Um, we're not quite at 15 yet, but we will continue to keep fighting until um, our employers do what's right and give us what we deserve. And it's happening all around the United States now. There's something like, I don't know, a dozen states uh, around, uh, around the states, uh, U.S. states, where the minimum wage has been legislated up to $15. Uh, correct. I know New York and Seattle have increased their minimum wages up to $15 an hour. Um, there's a, various other ones. I don't want to give you specific names. I'm not sure. Um, but I know there, like you said, there are several states that have already passed that. And I mean, Missouri is, we are well on our way in Kansas City. We've won 70% of uh, Kansas City that are in agreement with the 15 ballot. Uh, St. Louis themselves had won uh, their wage increase and was actually making uh, $10 an hour before uh, Missouri passed the preemption law, which stole those raises from uh, those workers. But the, the sad reality is, even if the state law is not changed to $15 hour minimum wage, these employers themselves, these billion dollar companies that we work for, they have the money and the resources and the power to give these workers what they deserve, to grant these workers a livable wage. Bridget, I'm just wondering, uh, thank you so much for your time. How are your kids responding to this? What are your kids saying to you? I'm sure they're aware of your struggle. Um, my children are aware that they don't necessarily have all of uh, the things that other children have. However, uh, they're very excited. Every time I go out to share my story or tell somebody um, what's going on with the movement, uh, every interview I do, every strike that I go out, uh, they're, they're proud to stand next to me and to continue to fight for you know, racial and economic justice. They know that everything that their mother is doing is for them, for a better future for them, and a better future for uh, everyone's children that is a part of the fight right now. So right now, Bridget, you're 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 still at nine dollars and fifty an hour, or have you been raised? Um, I did recently get. <laughs> I got a ten cent raise. Woohoo! <laughs> That's so um, I'm I'm actually making nine sixty now. Um, so I did I did get a little bit of a raise, but again, I do feel 
that a, a huge part of that was, you know, me going out on strike with my workers and letting my employer know that we're not going to continue to stand for this, that we need more. And uh, not only did I get raises, but a few of uh, my coworkers in various shops have also earned raises. Bridget Hughes, thank you so much for your time. I wish you the best of luck down there in Kansas City. Thank you so much for having me. Bridget Hughes is an organizer with Stand Up KC. She spoke with me from Kansas City. James Oden, a.k.a. St. Louis Jimmy and Hard Work Boogie, recorded in Chicago in April 1949. You are listening to The Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. The pros and cons of genetic engineering have been fiercely debated since the mid-1970s when the first transgenic animal, a mouse, was created. Since then, tomatoes, fish, insects, and sheep have had their genomes tweaked as have global staples like canola, corn, and soybeans. 
Now, as if it couldn't have been predicted, a brand new technology raises the stakes. Gene drives, they're called, and Pat Mooney is worried. No one has examined the impacts of new technologies on agriculture, the environment, and economic democracy through a more critical lens than Pat Roy Mooney. Here's Pat speaking at the World Social Forum in Montreal in August 2016. Today, it is, I think, reasonable to say that anything that might be done with DNA can be done with DNA. There really aren't actual technical limitations to, or scientific limitations maybe to what, that's a better word, scientific limitations to what can be done. Whether it is financially viable, morally acceptable, uh, economically, or, or, or not economically, environmentally plausible or safe, is another question. But it can be done. So we can list long lists, in fact, of techniques that are possible to, now to be used in terms of the manipulation of DNA. The point is not to have in some, in, if you're talking to the European Union, they have a list of seven te technologies they say can transform DNA. None of them do they believe or do they argue are actually GMO. They say there are other things. Um, there's the, others say there are eight different traits or different, different technologies. Some say there's only really five. Uh, in some ways, I'd argue there's only one or two that really are significantly different from each other. Regardless of any of that, the point still is that it's now possible to uh, make a map of the genome of any species, plant, animal, or human, uh, and it's possible cheaply and, 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 and accurate, relatively accurately, relatively accurately, and it's possible from that map to be able to put it onto your laptop, to link, to, to manipulate that D, the DNA of that species, and to then transform it to have the traits that you think are useful. And that can be done, again, at, for a human being, it costs about $1,000 to be able to map your genome. It'll be a lot less in, a few, in another few months, probably. Uh, for plants, it's, it's less than that, uh, though it varies. And uh, the, it's, it's not expensive to be able to go on to eBay, buy yourself a, a, a gene sequencing machine for $400 secondhand, attach it to your laptop, uh, buy the, the, uh, the sugars you need to manipulate DNA, the AC, to make DNA, the ACGs and Ts of DNA, and to then adjust the gene sequence that you have on your screen to be what you want to have in that plant variety, for example. That's quite doable. It doesn't always work the way you expect it to, but you can do it. So if you have more expensive equipment, the kind that Monsanto would use, for example, then, of course, it's, 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 uh, it's, uh, you can be much more accurate than that. It's possible to recognize that you, as we learn more about the, the gene sequences of, of different species, it's possible to, to go further and say, okay, I, can, I want to adjust for this kind of trait or that kind of trait, in theory. There is really nothing that can't be changed, in theory, in the DNA. So when we talk about some of the new research in the last two years around what are called gene drives, it really is simply taking that, and, and we can, again, we can go into the details of, of some of the techniques, but frankly, it comes down to being able to say that it's possible today to take, if you want to, if you want to give a specific example that's now being discussed, if you want to wipe out 
malaria in Uganda and, and Burkina Faso, which is what the Gates Foundation is proposing to do with Imperial College in, in the UK, in the year 2023, they're suggesting, they'd be able to do this. It's, if you want to wipe, wipe out malaria, what you do is you target one of the 370 different species of mosquitoes in Africa that con conveys, conveys most of the malaria, and you simply go into that, the, the genome of the mosquito, and you make all of the mosquitoes male. All the offspring will be male. You adjust the chromosome, so it's guaranteed that 100% of the offspring will be male. That means that within, and that's cheap, by the way, to do. That means that within about a year, or about at the most nine generations of mosquitoes in the course of the year, all, there will be no longer that species. It will cease to exist in that ecosystem, at least. So you can, in theory, wipe out malaria for Uganda or for, or at least an ecosystem within Uganda and, and, and Burkina Faso. So that's the power of the technology. Or you can choose to say, I want to um, uh, create a, a drought tolerance, or more likely you want to create a herbicide tolerance uh, in that species. You can spread it that way. You can adjust for that trait and build the DNA you want to, and you can drive that trait. That's the, where the drive comes from. You can drive that trait through the species. So that by normal, through, through any sexually uh, reproducing species, you can rapidly make, as rapidly as the species reproduces, you can make that gene dominant in the species. It takes longer for a wheat variety, of course, than it does for a mosquito, but it's, it still can be done, or for a weed. And that, so the implications of that, when that was discovered less than two years ago, that could be done, it could be done cheaply, was a, a tremendous shock for science and for industry, and for governments, and for the military. Because the implication that that could be done is, is really quite staggering. It means that um, it's possible to develop a, a targeted disease aimed at an ethnic community, if you're in the military. As long as they've got a unique genetic trait that you can target, you could target that ethnic community. It means it's possible to, to uh, to spread any kind of disease rapidly in a population if you wish to, any kind of biological, it can become a bio biological weapon. Because of that, perhaps more, more because of that than any other reason, when it was found less than two years ago that this was possible and financially viable, uh, industry and government got together and said, we've got to figure out what to do with this, this technology. The National Academy of Sciences earlier this year uh, produced reports saying, here's what the implications are. It was funded by DARPA primarily, the, the Defense Advanced Research uh, Administration in the United States, together with the Gates Foundation, put money into it as well. People play up Gates a lot. It's not such a big deal that Gates was involved, frankly, as it is that DARPA was involved, uh, seeing the, the, the defense risks to, to societies because of this technology. And even, again, among those who are always cheerleaders for new technologies, there is this feeling of, oh my God, this is something powerful. This is really quite dangerous. And we've got to have a way of, of understanding how it works. But while that's being said, and there are government commissions and, and the White House and so on all looking into the impacts of this, faster than we've ever seen anyone look into a technology before, by the way. This is absolutely unique to see a new technology come on the scene within two years' time. We've got governments trying to figure out regulations for it. That's really almost unheard of. And that's starting to happen. 
but it's happening in areas which I don't, I don't find give me any sense of confidence, frankly. So what they're saying, though, is, and on the positive side of these new technologies, what they're saying is, and especially gene drives, is that um, we could <coughs> get rid of weeds for crops. Instead of spraying uh, crops for, with herbicides, we can simply go out and change the DNA of the weed and have it spread throughout the population. So we wipe out that weed altogether. Since you could kind of hop the fence out of the field into the forest and kill it wherever it is. So it doesn't come back again. Uh, or we can again induce a trait into livestock or into microbes or in yeasts, for example, or whatever, to develop again new materials that we can use for food and agriculture without even using the food, using crops or fields. Almost anything can be manipulated. And research is moving in all of those directions at the same time. So we have Gates and, and Imperial College again saying that they think they can wipe out malaria in Africa uh, by sometime in the 2020s. Uh, we've got uh, uh, the US government looking into what can be done with Zika virus in, in Florida, concerned about the spread of that disease, and concerns, of course, in Latin America about, about Ebola and Zika, saying that our only solution may be to, to, to wipe out those mosquitoes in some way or another using gene drives. The, and perhaps more alarmingly, in the last few days, we've had the New Zealand government saying that they have a long list of alien species they think are causing billions of dollars of damage to agriculture in New Zealand. They want to wipe them out. And they have a plan to try to do that, they say, by the early 2020s. And they don't say what the plan is, but it's, I don't know that there's any way to tr think you could wipe out alien species that rapidly unless you're using something like a gene drive to get out there and attack and destroy. Uh, the alien species that you want to get rid of. Well, I don't think it's going to be hard for anyone in this room to realize the implications of that for, for uh, what could happen to biological diversity or what could happen to agriculture. What it means is that, of course, as always happens, uh, when you introduce new traits into a species like this, especially a dominant trait into a species like this, is that it will hop the fence not from just from the field to the forest, it will hop into other species. So the one of the 370 different species of mosquitoes that's under attack for malaria in, in Uganda will spread to many other, if not all, species of mosquitoes. What does that mean to the ecosystem when there aren't mosquitoes anymore? We're not even sure. I come from Winnipeg in Canada where we'd like, love to get rid of the mosquitoes, but uh, it's, it's dangerous for society to even think in those terms. And what if it spreads from there? What about with other weeds? Does it move from the... Uh, was it uh, the weeds or does, uh, amaranth to amaranth itself? Does, it become, does amaranth get wiped out in Central America? Because it's too closely associated to weeds that we want to get rid of in North America. So it's, it's those kinds of implications that we have that, that, that we're not hearing governments talk about, we're not hearing industry talk about. Monsanto and the others are fully enthusiastic about what they think they could achieve with this new technology. Uh, and, and no one's yet addressing the concerns of it. Pat Mooney is the founder of the Etcetera Group, ETC, formerly RAFI, Rural Advancement Foundation International. Pat received the Right Livelihood Award in 1985 and Canada's Pearson Peace Prize in 1998. Learn more about Pat Mooney and Gene Drives at www.greenplanetmonitor.net. Here's Eric Clapton, Snake Drive. <laughs> 
If earth-warming greenhouse gases continue to be released at business-as-usual rates, life in some of South Asia's most crowded cities and farm fields may no longer be survivable. So says a recent study conducted by researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Their worrisome findings come down to the distinction between dry and wet bulb temperatures. Professor Al-Fati Al-Tahir was the study's lead author. Can you explain to me, Professor El-Tahir, what the difference is between a, a dry bulb temperature and a wet bulb temperature? Because yeah. 30, 35 degrees Celsius here in Winnipeg is hot, but it's yeah. a dry bulb temperature, but it's not fatal. But a yeah. wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees Celsius is potentially fatal. Can you explain the difference between the two? Yeah, the uh, wet bulb temperature and the dry bulb temperature are basically the two types of measurements that are routinely taken at meteorological stations around the world. So usually you will find in a meteorological station two thermometers. One thermometer with a dry bulb, the bulb of the thermometer, the tip of the thermometer, which we call the bulb, is dry and the temperature measured by that thermometer is referred to as the dry bulb thermometer, and that's the normal temperature that we use usually. The other thermometer, however, would have what we call, would, would have a bulb, a tip that kept wet, and we refer to that as the wet bulb temperature. So um, these two measurements are recorded routinely around the world, the dry bulb and the wet bulb temperatures, and they are used to, the, the dry bulb temperature is used to describe temperature that we all refer to. The wet bulb temperature, however, is used in conjunction with the dry bulb temperature to retrieve the level of humidity in the air. And that because, by definition, the wet bulb temperature is the temperature that an air parcel would attain if you evaporate water into it until it saturates. And it's a function of the temperature the regular temperature, and the level of humidity in the air. And so hot air, hot air that's humid is, is much harder to take for the human body than dry air. Exactly. The wet bulb temperature is, is, it measures the degree of mugginess, how muggy is the air, which means how warm and humid at the same time. So that's what the wet bulb temperature measures. Um, the reason we focus on the wet bulb temperature is because it provides a natural uh, connection to the thermodynamics of the human body. The human body, when you expose to the natural environment, the human body sweats, some of the sweats evaporate, and that evaporative cooling brings the temperature of the skin of the human body to match the wet bulb temperature. So if you are walking on the street in a warm day, the air temperature would be the dry bulb temperature. The skin temperature in your, of your body, however, would correspond to the wet bulb temperature. And the 35 degrees centigrade that you refer to is regarded as an upper limit to what a human body could tolerate as a skin temperature. And that has to do with the fact that the inner core temperature of the human body is about 37 and if the human body's skin temperature is greater than 35, then you, you no longer can have um, transfer of heat from the inner body to the surface to get rid of the metabolic heat that gets generated. 
And so that becomes severely, um, uh, basically limits the functioning of the human body. So tell me about these models that you've, you and your colleagues have developed, Professor Elta here, uh, large-scale m- m- climate models that indicate that wep- with a business-as-usual uh, greenhouse gas emission scenario, wet bulb temperatures of 35 will start to become more common in, in, in South Asia and the Persian Gulf. Tell me about those models and what they tell you. So what we have uh, been studying is these extreme heat waves that could basically happen in Asia. And we use in that some of what the IPCC um, models, what's called CMF5. These are global models that have been run by different groups around the world to simulate and project the future of the climate on Earth. This is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Exactly. So we use some of those models. We look at the models and we select among them the ones that are credible for simulating climate for our regions of interest. For example, if we are focusing on India, then among the CMF5 models, we will try and pick the models that are credible for simulating the regional climate of India. But we don't stop there. We take those models and we use them with our MIT regional climate model. This is a model that's similar to all climate models. However, it has high resolution that's basically uh, designed to simulate the details of climate, not at the global scale, but at the regional scale. And we constrain the model, our MIT model, with boundary conditions that we obtain from the CMF5, the IPCC model that I described earlier. And so doing that, we could come up with detailed, high-resolution projections of climate that's tailored to study a specific region rather than looking at the global picture. And based on those models, we find that it's not actually web of temperature of 35 degrees will not be something common in the future. It will be also a rare occurrence, but it's going to be a possible occurrence, uh, a likely occurrence with, with limited frequency. Well, how how, free, how frequent would wet bulb temperatures of 35 C be in 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 India and 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 the Ganges along the Ganges Valley and Bangladesh and Pakistan and the Persian Gulf based on these models? So I have to say that you know, in the most severe, humid and muggy day in North America here in Canada or in in, in the U.S you will find wet bulb temperature magnitudes that's in the range of 25, 26, things like that. With, with, a, business as usual, with a business as usual greenhouse gas scenario. Yeah, yeah if, if, I, if I may. So, so however, globally, you may find locations that may have experienced extreme values as high as 31. So nowhere on Earth at 35 or anything close to 35 has been observed. So when we talk about these future heat waves in India and in the um, Persian Gulf area, we are bringing up the possibility that extreme heat waves that would approach and in a very few and rare occasions would exceed the 35, those are, could become possible to happen under the business-as-usual scenario of greenhouse gas emissions. The same kind of extreme conditions were not simulated when we assumed in our models 
mitigation scenarios that are significant, similar to what the Paris Agreement has called for. When you assume those kind of mitigation scenarios to be followed in the future, then the models do not simulate the extreme heat waves that are um, could be described as approaching the 35 degrees centigrade threshold. Now, how much of a problem with the business as usual greenhouse gas emission uh, projections? How, how serious of a problem would ex- extreme heat waves of this sort, with wet bulb temperatures that occasionally hit 35, be in a region where you've got like one one and a half billion people living, and uh, who are socioeconomically vulnerable. They work in the fields. Um, yeah. Tell me so, about this. So we have, we have done two specific studies, one in, 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 uh, in the Persian Gulf and one in, in South Asia. Um, in the Persian Gulf, we simulate this extreme heat wave that could happen in the future. However, the population in the Gulf is not very densely, the region is not very densely populated. The region is relatively rich. And people do not have to work in summer outdoors um, as as often. The difference with South Asia, what makes what makes South Asia a special case is that it's not only the natural hazard from these heat waves is significant, but also the level of vulnerability of the population, measured by the facts that you have very high densities of population in in this in South Asia, especially in northern India. Bangladesh, um, the regions where we are projecting the extreme heat waves happen to coincide with regions where you have dense population. Most of them are with low incomes, significantly low incomes compared to, to other regions, and people who work as farmers. So for living, they have to spend time out in the field taking care of their farms. We think these three factors, the density of population, the level, the economic status, and the profession being farmers, makes this population much more vulnerable than many other parts of the world. And so the combination of the natural hazard that we're projecting from heat waves and the um, um, vulnerability of that population are, are, quite, uh, are quite significant compared to any other region. And a, a, a compounding factor in all this uh, that's worrisome is that there's uh, uh, the areas, regions you've described in South Asia produce vast amounts of food for the population. And so uh, killer heat waves are, are going to rebound on the capacity of these countries and these regions to, to produce food for their populations. Yeah. So I think, I think they are going to, you know... Um we are going to there are going to be a lot of impacts associated with 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 uh, rising temperature uh, the focus of our study however has been on heat waves and how they could impact human health but you could imagine that the same kind of severe conditions that are projected for those regions could have implications to um, uh, uh, food production they may have implications to economic activity they may have implications to um, yeah, ecosystems and, and, and so on. However, all those uh, impacts were not the main focus of our study, and we were focusing only on heat waves and their potential impact on, on human health. What impact would these heat waves have, Professor El Tahir, on the intensity of monsoons? In your article, you mentioned that uh, um, elevated heat is 
heat is more elevated in the Persian Gulf, but a lot of the increased heat is happening over bodies of water, and that, that increased heat is generating a lot of humidity in the air, which I imagine uh, intensifies monsoons. Uh, what effects will business-as-usual scenarios have on the intensity of monsoons in South Asia? Like, we're now seeing this situation now. Um, you know, as, as, as I said, uh, the, you know, the main focus of this paper that we're talking about has been on heat waves and their relation to human health. We have done subsequent work in which we are now looking at um, how the business-as-usual scenarios impacts monsoons, impacts interannual variability of monsoons. However, this is an ongoing research, and we are not at a point in which we are uh, sharing that uh, broadly yet. But, but this is a subject of interest that we have, and we are looking at things about, like how would business as usual impact the monsoon and also how it may impact interannual variability in the occurrence of floods and droughts that may be associated with that. How are the countries, the nations of South Asia, Professor El-Tahir, uh, responding to the threat that you describe? These are countries which are in rapid development and which rely heavily on on fossil fuels and who are generating significant quantities of greenhouse gases. So how, how, how should they respond? Uh, I think, I think what, what in our paper we emphasize that, you know, um, uh, especially the case of India, where uh, they have been, India is not, is not a major uh, player in terms of uh, contributing in the past to how much emissions happened in the past. Per capita, India contributed very little to this creation of this problem. However, currently, India, in the in the last few years, is one of the regions of the world where there have been significant rise in the emissions, and and that's a lot of that um, rise in the emission is quite legitimate, uh, justified by needs for economic development um, uh, to help uh, uh, betterment of the population in in India. What we, what we emphasize in our article is that the results that we presented could, um, could present a, a challenge for India in the sense that, um, um, you know, increases in emission that may be needed for economic development uh, could potentially have impacts on climate that's not only um, measurable in terms of the global climate, but, 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 uh, but potentially have significant local and regional impacts on the Indian population itself. So this is a very uh, uncomfortable position for governments to find themselves in, that in trying to uh, help uh, improve the living conditions for their populations through economic development, they may harm the environment in ways that would hurt the same population. It's a complex issue, and um, our results are just published a few months ago, and you know I'm sure that this is something that will take time to be uh, assimilated and reflected in, in, in policy debates about balance between development and, 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 and environmental uh, considerations. But here we see the underlying theme that climate change is a, is, is a potentially catastrophic situation that, that, that will impact everybody on the planet. But it's so it's so unjust that th those countries that have made the least contribution to the to, to the problem are the ones that uh, potentially bear the greatest burden. And in this case, 
um, you know, uh, impoverished farmers, farming people of South Asia. Um, So I have to emphasize that these consequences, these impacts are not necessarily going to happen. These are the things that are potentially will happen under business and usual scenario. And we are hoping by educating the public and informing the policy, ongoing policy debate about climate change, that when people uh, recognize what kind of severe impacts will take place and what kind of populations will be subjected to those, that may help uh, in the formulation of of policies that would basically avoid this problem rather than creating it and then trying to uh, manage it uh, in the future. Uh, As I emphasized earlier, our simulations assuming reasonable mitigation scenarios uh, basically do not include any projections with with such severe heat waves. Um, Although there are going to be some impacts and an increase in the frequency and maybe the severity of heat waves, they do not get to levels that are as serious and as deadly as you would get under the business as usual scenario. Professor El-Tahir, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, sir. Al-Fatih El-Tahir is Breen M. Kerr Professor of Hydrology and Climate at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. This is Lonnie Johnson from back in 1931. Check out this guitar. Your pappy and your grandpa too, 
Uncle Ned pig meat gonna be the death of you Uncle Ned you can't do the things you did years ago Uncle Ned you can't do the things you did years ago You remember your 94 and you can't shake that thing no more You can't do the things you did years ago it for today's edition of the Green Blue Show. A bit of news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio. Subscribe to our podcast at www.greenplanetmonitor.net. The Green Blue Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. Bye for now.